As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily. As I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which is morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Hi, hello nerds, it's me again. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am that host of yours, she who officially has realized her limitations on narrative storytelling, Liv. And those limitations are Aristophanes. I will be honest with you, I am not proud of that series of episodes we just finished. If I could go back and cover something else, I would. But I am very glad that uh, I managed to get the two guests that I have spoken to for this series, independent scholar Julie Levy last week and associate professor at Trent University George Kovacs today. Between these two, they actually make Aristophanes an interesting person to read about and a playwright whose plays are worth reading and studying, thankfully, because gods know I was not making that case by myself. In today's episode, George and I talked about all things Aristophanes and the Thesmophoria Zeusai. We talked about gender dynamics and politics in ancient Athens. We talked more about that historical and political context that drives this play and everything within it. We talked about Aristophanes as a person, his style and, and intentions, and so much more. I could not have found a better guest to make the case for Aristophanes and this play, so I really cannot wait for you all to hear this episode. Gods know I don't have enough good things to say on my own, so let's get right into this fascinating look at why the Thesmophoria Zeusai is interesting and important, actually. Conversations I guess Aristophanes is worth reading, after all. Redeeming the Thesmophoria Zeusai with George Kovacs. So, as the listeners heard last week, I... Have, I'm not an enormous fan of this play. I'm glad I covered it because I'm glad I now know what the story is. But I definitely was not prepared for exactly how Aristophanes was going about talking about women specifically in this play. And then also. That's right. Yeah. Ripies. Yeah. So what like, you know, why what's kind of your connection to this play? You, you know, you volunteered to come on and thank you for that. So what's sort of your yeah, your story with this before, as you say, uh, I've got a pretty long history with this play, actually. Um, so right now I read it with a couple of my classes here at Trent. I've got a course on comedy in the ancient world, which I'm going through right now. And so that's why when you were tweeting about it, it was like I had just worked through the play yet again. Um, and in that course, we look at the nature of comedy and is this actually funny? And do we still want to read things from antiquity when we don't find them funny anymore? And we spend a lot of time thinking about Euripides. Um, yeah, Euripides, right? So mm -hmm. Aristophanes kind of has this obsession with Greek tragedy that, you know, if you've talked about frogs before, you've you've seen in action. Mm -hmm. um, but this is the second of the three Euripides cameos that um, Aristophanes has in his um, sort of oeuvre, right? Um, and the other play that, or the other course that I read this with is my love, sex, and death in the ancient world course. Hmm. And that class is um, cross-listed with the department, uh, formerly the Department of Gender and Women's Studies, and now it's the Department of Gender and Social Justice. So that really kind of pushes us in some very interesting directions 
and when we read the play there, we think about it in terms of the treatment of all of basically all of the non cis het male characters. So not only the treatment of the women, but of Agathon and Cleisthenes, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I've been working with this play a long time. Um, I'll tell you because I'm very confident there's no video evidence. I performed in a production <laughs> of it in the year 2000 here at, at Trent. I played um, Nazilicus, the kinsman in that production. And, you know, so yeah, I, I come back to it a lot. And it's a play that I think everything about Aristophanes changes over time. Um, one thing about comedy is that it, it it changes more quickly than almost anything else from antiquity. You know, I can teach my courses on Greek tragedy and I can use translations from the 1950s if I have to. And they're still pretty consistent with what we do today. Translations of comedy tend to go stale very quickly. And mm -hmm. I find the attitudes with which even I'm reading the plays has changed considerably, you know, in the 25 years that I've been doing this. And, you know, it's like almost every two to three years, I have a completely new cohort of students who are thinking about how comedy works in really different ways. Right. Um, so. So, yeah, that that's my history of the with with this particular play. Yeah. Well, I'm even more excited to have this conversation then, because it sounds like you've got kind of exactly what what I want to talk about even more, which is that, I mean, I, I kind of knew what I was getting into because I knew it was an Aristophanes play, you know, at a yep. women's festival and that there was going to be, you know, men disguising themselves, uh, you know, in order to get in. But I was not mm -hmm. expecting things like the character of Agathon and Cleisthenes and and what mm -hmm. that means both in the ancient world and today. And it's, I mean, it, it added a whole other level of like both fascination, but also like <laughs> a bit of just kind of like me wondering how on earth I should be talking about this, you know, yep. in relation to keeping it contextual with the ancient world and also being like, well, you know, I'm also in 2023 and I am a show that is deeply conscious of, of gender and gender, you know, mm -hmm. representation mm -hmm. and, and everything like that. So it was, it was, it was unexpected getting into that. So I would, I mean, I'd love to hear anything about those two characters. I mean, and, and really anything about this play broadly, but they really are the, the characters that really both fascinated me most and were the sort of the hardest for me to kind of wrap my head around in terms of how to present them in a narrative form like I do. Yeah, fair enough. You know, Cleisthenes, in a sense, he's a little bit easier to deal with in some mm -hmm. ways because he's a running joke for Aristophanes. We don't know quite what it is about him, but we're told explicitly in the play, he's the only male who's allowed to enter the women's only festival of the Thesmophoria. He seems unable to have been grown, be able to grow a beard. That seems to be what the problem is for him. Mm -hmm. um, and that for Aristophanes, that makes him the butt of jokes because it makes him womanly. It makes him, you know, not masculine. Um, so we have other places where he's mocked in Aristophanes in Lysistrata, for example, when the men are all, you know, sort of <laughs> uh, separated from their wives, uh, you get a one liner like the men are so desperate, even Cleisthenes is starting to look good. Um, oh. and even in, 
even in frogs, there's a reference to him, um, I believe, I, if I recall correctly, where they're mm-hmm. still making fun of him. But he's a one note joke. Like it's it's just you mentioned Cleisthenes and it's that he's not manly and that he is sexually submissive. And I don't think we actually have any corroborating evidence for Cleisthenes' personality or his sexual preferences. But because he doesn't mm-hmm. have a beard, there it is. Agathon is in some ways more complex as a character. For a couple of reasons. A, we know more about him. We can mm-hmm. say more about him. Um, I don't know if you've ever talked about Plato's Symposium on your podcast. Um, oh, but far too ap- long ago now. <laughs> but Yeah, yeah. Um, but Agathon appears as a character in that um, dialogue. And in fact, um, Plato's Symposium is set at Agathon's house after he's won his victory in uh, the year 416, I think, if I recall correctly. And so he's kind of the host for this discussion of um, love. And he's there with his um, sexual partner is another one of the um, speakers there. So we actually do have evidence of a relationship there. Uh, But then, you know, what makes it even more complex is that he's a, a tragic poet. And one of the things that Aristophanes does extraordinarily well in this play is he kind of smashes together these two separate issues. One is, you know, the issue of gender and the man versus woman, you know, sort of competition that's told entirely from, you know, the masculine point of view, right? Like there's, there's, uh, no one's mistaking this for a, um, a play that's written by or for the women, Um, I think. Um, But the same thing is going on with tragedy and comedy. So Aristophanes is a comic poet. He loves tragedy. I think I think we can say that with some confidence, the level at which he's able to engage with Greek tragedy and like he's able to quote lines and he's able to um, really cleverly recontextualize quotations and 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 passages and indeed, right, the second half of this play um, has that sequence of four tragic parodies that are really well done. Mm-hmm. But he's also got a bit of a chip on his shoulder that tragedy is considered the the senior sibling or the the more prestigious of the two art forms. And so he's kind of always ready to chip away at the superiority of 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 tragedy and sort of assert, you know, comedy as as something that is at least equal, if not better. And so when we get Agathon, who's portrayed in this kind of sexually submissive, gender ambiguous manner, um, we really have this kind of fusion of the, you know, the the man-woman debate that's going on in one half of the play, but also the play of of genre of tragedy and comedy. Um, now, I'm not the originator of this theory, I should say. Um, there's a very influential article by Froma Zeitling called Travesties of Gender and Genre. It's a very long, very complex article. Um, mm. But she does an amazing job of presenting, you know, how these two uh, seemingly very different threads are kind of brought together throughout the play. Mm. That is, uh, I mean, this is exactly the context I wanted. So thank you. This is <laughs> going to be the yep, perfect yep. additional episode. Um, but it, yeah, it, it, it's so interesting to look at these characters. And and from my perspective of how I handle at least my narrative episodes, and this is why I'm also so grateful that I 
get to have conversations now on the show because it adds so much more. But on my end, you know, I'm, I'm telling these these plays and stories and I it, tragedy is considerably easier to tell in the form that I do. I'm increasingly realizing how difficult it is to, to do comedy in this way and that yep. I'm doing a one person show kind of thing, trying to explain these plays. And the thing about comedy is that, I mean, not only is it, it diff- more difficult to express like the type of jokes that they use, like in, in the form mm-hmm. that I do, but also it is so ingrained in the contemporary time. Like you have to do all these things, like explain who Agathon is and Cleisthenes That's and right. how Aristophanes feels about them. And, and I mean, then of course the Euripides and, you know, using Euripides as a character while reminding my audience that this is a, Aristophanes is fictional version of Euripides and it's such a it's obviously considerably or it's it's quite interesting in that respect but so difficult you know to to portray in any kind of like coherent way but it yeah it's interesting to think about also like you're saying that you know the way that Aristophanes is commenting on tragedy as a genre within his play while also commenting on on women and gender broadly and I'm so curious kind of you know, how, I mean, it's difficult, obviously, it's kind of impossible to say how he really, what he was kind of trying to convey with these characters. Like, obviously, he is kind of using Cleisthenes as this one-liner, like you're saying, yeah. especially because I'm glad you mentioned that Lysistrata and, and um, was it Frogs also, that he's he's in both? and uh, Where Euripides appears? No, oh, Cleisthenes. Cleisthenes, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I covered both of those so long ago now that I had not even remembered the name. So it's it's interesting to have that kind of connection. Um, yeah, and they are just one-liners in both Lysistrata yeah. and and Frogs. This is the only time we get the cameo. So, you know, he's, I guess, more than a one-liner here, but it's all about, you know, um, this is a masked theater tradition. So it's a caricature mask, mm-hmm. right? It's going to look ridiculous in some way. And Aristophanes clearly thinks he's going to get big laughs if he brings, you know, a, a, a beardless Cleisthenes mask on stage. Yeah, that's so interesting. And and that, that brings up like the idea of of comedy broadly, especially in the ancient world comparatively today. So, I mean, I don't know if I how much we want to jump around. And so if you have more kind of to talk about when it comes to the, the Agathon and Cleisthenes of it all, please feel free. But but I'm curious yep. then, because you were mentioning that you also talk about, or in, in your class, you talk about when, you know, h- how to navigate something where it was hilarious in the past. And, you know, while there are funny parts of this play, there are other plays of his where the, the comedy still shines in a way that this one really doesn't age all of that well, but it is, of course, still interesting to study. So I'm so curious about that whole aspect. No, I think that's right. And, you know, what you were saying earlier about just how deeply contextual um, or embedded in his own time Aristophanes is, is exactly right. So again, like this, I'm teaching this comedy course right now. And for the first four or five weeks, I'm just constantly behind my lecture schedule because it's like you say, it's just joke after joke, scenario after scenario that has to be explained in some way. Um, we're off into new comedy now, which is about a hundred, um, years or 120 years after Aristophanes, depending on how you measure it. Uh, and there it's easy. Like we know a little bit about Menander, the comic poet, but we don't need to know much. Here's a family that lives just outside of Athens. This guy hates everybody and has divorced his wife and he's estranged from his son. And they're gonna, 
things are going to happen that bring them all back together. Hmm. Right. And that's, that's kind of all the context that you really, really need to make sense of it. Um, and you're right about this play too. I mean, there's some that some of the plays of Aristophanes are very challenging because of the way that, you know, our changing value sets have, um, you know, kind of overwrite what's there. Right. So with this play, you know, the treatment of the women is, is very difficult to sort of reconcile with modern sensibilities where there are other plays where you can read that don't have that same engagement or where they are engaged or in ways that are sort of so critically distant from us that, that it's not going to, to, you know, affect us in, in, in quite mm-hmm. so immediate a way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I didn't think about comparing it to the frogs because it was fun yep. to cover the frogs because it was mostly just kind of silly and and mostly playing with tragedy more than anything, which is obviously is you know it, it doesn't contain the same issue. So even if there were like maybe a handful yeah. of jokes, and it's been like two years since I covered it, but um, you know it, it's a very different thing. And also, you just have the inherent nature of like frogs singing in the underworld is funny. <laughs> like that's just great. Yep. It makes it so much yep. easier. It's just silly. Um, whereas, yeah, this one, it, I was interested in it primarily because of the women's festival and then Euripides, like I was saying, cause I, right. I absolutely love Euripides and, and I love him and defend him explicitly because of his use of women. So I was really mm-hmm. interested in looking at, you know, what kind of the complaints are through Aristophanes and that I think in itself is a fascinating thing, but maybe we want to talk about mm-hmm. that a little bit later, but, um, but how he covers the women and then trying to navigate the, the like figuring out what level of the stereotypes and jokes that he's playing with are Aristophanes versus like mm. the culture at the time or completely, you know, overblown intentionally is really interesting and difficult to look at. Yeah. And, you know, one funny thing about this play, given the way that we're talking about it and looking at it this is actually the safe material for Aristophanes in some ways. Mm. Right. So I know you've already had a couple of episodes, you know, that, that you'll have talked about this and maybe you've got a little bit of historical context, but you know, Aristophanes, career, most of it plays out against the Peloponnesian war, which is this mm-hmm. big, long sort of sequence of conflicts with the city of Sparta. And quite recently for this play, um, they've had a truce uh, as part of the, the conflict, but Athens has sent an expedition to Sicily and they're going to try and conquer Sicily during this period of truce. And that Sicily is just too close to Sparta. It completely reignites the war and it's an absolute disaster. They basically send all of their ships and all of their ships are destroyed and they get this news in 413 and so 412 it's an extraordinarily politically fraught time in Athens, so much so that we actually have an oligarchic coup in the offing. It's about six weeks after this play um, is produced, the democracy is overthrown, right? Um, this so-called oligarchy of, of the 400. So Aristophanes, who for the first decade or so of his career is extraordinary, extraordinarily politically engaged and he critiques you know politicians of his day he makes fun of the city for some of its policies he's very you know sort of um, vocal about the nature of the Peloponnesian War Um, 
when he gets to 411, things change, right? So he writes his two, the first two plays that feature women in power. So he does Lysistrata, which is an anti-war play. And for that reason, we think he produces it at the festival known as the, as the Lanaya. Um, because that's a bit smaller. There are fewer um, visiting dignitaries. It's kind of more um, exclusively Athenian, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have any any visitors um, you know, to watch this thing. Um, but even there, the central figure is um, um, Lysistrata rather than um, caricaturing any particular Athenian general or politician. And then we get Thesmophoria Zeusai um, in April at the city Dionysia, the other festival, and the politics are completely gone. Like it is just not a good time to be political. Um, so in a sense, you know, Aristophanes almost has to reinvent what he's doing a little bit. He can't rely on his traditional political fare. So what does he do? He goes after this battle of, of the sexes um, in this environment that, of course, is extraordinarily chauvinistic, misogynistic. Um, and it's kind of this wall to wall sort of locker talk idea of what women get up to and what would happen if women ever had any kind of power. And, um, even the, the speech at the center that you get from the chorus, you know, the, it's called the parabasis is the sort of formal set piece name. Um, normally, uh, Aristophanes's chorus, it's, it step out of character and they address the audience directly and they'll often talk about, um, some big political or social issue of the day. And here it's all about the women saying, you know, you men are so crazy. Why do you, um, there's a total paradox here. You say you don't want us in the house, but then you won't actually let us leave the house that we're a curse on the household, but you trap us inside. Right. Um, and it's all got this kind of sense of, you know, this almost, um, like sort of head padding attitude. We're going to let the women speak for a little while, but in this, really safely contained way. And of course, right, all of these women, all of them are played by men, right? So so it's a real shift in what Aristophanes has done before. And he's not going to return to this women in power theme for a while. There are fragments of another Thesmophoria Zeusai that he hmm. seems to produce maybe about 10 years later. We know very, very little about it. And then in the 390s, he does a play called Ecclesia Zeusai or the Women of the Assembly. Um, mm-hmm. And it you know, it has some things in common with, um, with Thesmophoria and Zeusai. The women all put on fake beards and they vote themselves into power at the local, you know, Athenian assembly. And then you sort of get this fallout of what happens when the women are in charge. And it's got a real kind of utopia, dystopia feel to it, but, um, but it's quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I think I wandered away from some of the things you were you were saying no, earlier, but that is um, always yeah. my goal. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because we did talk about that a little bit um, in my episode with Julie, just the the sort of exactly where Athens was at the time, because that really mm-hmm. and I wasn't totally aware of it. It's funny. I was reading, I read it like a, a number of sections of of books on Aristophanes himself, and then also yep. the introduction to this, and somehow seemed to not get a lot of that historical context which seems so vital and and like and important but also it's fascinating that it's quite so close like i didn't realize it was even six weeks from this coup yeah it's it's right on the edge like they've got to see something coming yeah yeah 
Yeah, well, and what's interesting too is like, you know, like you're saying, com- comparatively to Lysistrata, like there is very little political aspects, but at the same time, there are a few little moments kind of peppered in where they talk yep. about tyranny. And so it's it's almost like you couldn't totally resist. You know, you had to at least toss in little bits of keeping tyranny down and, and like, and there's That's like a Persian right. aspect as well. And we don't we don't know for certain which play was played at which festival, but it's mm-hmm. a kind of scholarly consensus that the one that does have some political content is sort of safely, you know, squared away in the January festival. And then this one, Thesmo, which is, you know, sort of, you know, clearer of, you know, this political engagement, is put in the late March, early April festival, when there would be visiting dignitaries here to see, you know. But it's we don't know that for sure. Maybe someday evidence will come to light that, you know, reverses the order, but it seems very unlikely at this point. So we'll just have to keep guessing. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd heard a lot about how the, that one was at the Lanaya and this one is at the Dionysia. And I didn't yeah. think about that being the reason that's, but it makes sense. And it, it makes it more interesting to consider why it was at which, you know, why it was at each festival. Now remind me like the, uh, it, comedies they only did one at each festival right it wasn't like the tragedies where they would do three and a that's one right um aristophanes does manage to break that rule at least once um mm. in the year 422 there seem to be two plays written by aristophanes um but he seems to cheat by getting a buddy of his to produce another play so mm. in 422 his play wasps wins and it beats out another play by Aristophanes. But yes, it is normally one play per comedian per festival. If you get selected, right? There's a whole right. Um, process, right? There's a magistrate in charge of the festival and the magistrate chooses who's going to get a chorus is the official um, phrase that you're given a chorus for the festival. Um, right. And it, it's up to that person. We don't know what the selection criteria are. Um, almost certainly there's a kind of political connection, you know, element to it, right? It's got to have something to do with who you know. But but Aristophanes gets selected a lot. Um, mm-hmm. He's extremely popular in the first, you know, decade or so of his career in that he's getting in the first, I think it's in the first seven years, he could perform 14 times because there's two festivals per year. And he gets right. at least nine of those slots. Um, and there are actually a couple others that might be up there. So the high estimate is that he gets 12 out of 14. Oh, wow. Um, and that suggests that he's getting such popular reception that the magistrates are are continually bringing him back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And sort of connects to, and I'm deciding whether it's jumping around too much, but I'm, I'm fascinated by his treatment of Euripides, especially in comparison mm-hmm. to the frogs, because yep. he really... Like in the frogs, it just kind of seems like he sort of, and I, I know there's kind of commentary around that too of him kind of picking Euripides because Sophocles had only like just died and it was easier. Yeah, there's questions about that. But the other thing about Sophocles is he, it's possible he's just untouchable for a comedian. Mm. Um, what we know, we don't know the dates of almost any of Sophocles's plays, um, but we actually have a pretty comprehensive picture of his political life. So he held a number of political positions and um, uh, religious positions as well. He held a couple of priestships. And so he's kind of like this super upstanding citizen. He's also seen as this kind of perfect 
example of the tragedian and you know there might just not be a lot of room for aristophanes to make fun of that and so he's kind of boring mm-hmm. right whereas euripides has this reputation of being an iconoclast and he you know he's he's innovative but he breaks with tradition um he's you know associated whether properly or not with people like Socrates and these weird intellectual sophists. Right. And so there's just, there's just so much to play with there. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I don't know if you guys, um, if you've talked yet about, you know, things like the reputation of Euripides as hating women and um, not believing in the gods. Like those are the kind of two, you know, sort of reputational yeah. pieces that that stick to Euripides. And this is our first evidence for them. Um, the At the assembly of the women, where they're deciding what to do with Euripides, the first woman gets up and she gives her, you know, speech and she talks about um, how Euripides is mistreating women all the time. And then the second woman is really upset because she sells garlands at, you know, um, religious festivals. And Euripides is going around telling everyone that the gods don't exist. So nobody's buying, you know, garlands for religious festivals anymore. And, you know, both of those claims dog Euripides now for the next 2000 years. Like you can find, um, you know, scholarly works in the 20th century that will very confidently talk about um, Euripides' attitude towards women or gods. And it's really just, you know, keeping this tradition alive. And it's a funny there. It's a funny pair of accusations because they don't really stick if you read the plays of Euripides very carefully. From a comedy perspective, you don't want to talk about you know sort of nuanced positions. You want things to be very black and white, and that seems to be what's happening here. Um, but Euripides, or sorry, Aristophanes seems to think it's, you know, kind of a slam dunk if you make these two associations about Euripides and that they'll be accepted uh, wholesale, right? Yeah. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was bought it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now, it's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the Challenge Gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That is what blows my mind the most and and honestly is like why I wanted to look at this play at all because it has happened to me multiple times where I have commented upon Euripides' use of women because that is why I love him. Like the women that he writes are real people and they're complex and flawed and fascinating and, you know, I think the other two tragedians have a couple women like that but by and large for yep. me i find them all in euripides like diana is like the only one i like otherwise yeah it's 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 a real challenge right so you know i'm not going to say euripides is or sorry i'm going to phrase this so mm-hmm. you know euripides's relationship with his female characters is complicated in some ways like we always have to remember that this is a male poet writing for male actors for a notionally male audience. And, you know, if you took someone like Medea, for instance, as an example, there are readings of Medea that actually suggest that it's Jason who is the tragic figure, right? That he's, Mm -hmm. 
you know, this poor guy who was sent on this quest, he did what he had to do to succeed, but he's come back with this woman in tow and these two illegitimate children. And he's done what any sensible Greek man would do. He's found a Greek princess to marry so that he can have legitimate children. Um, and all he's got to do is get rid of this, you know, unreasonable <laughs> uh, foreign woman who clearly doesn't understand how marriage works. She thinks it's a contract between equals. What the hell is wrong with her? Um, <laughs> you know, it, like that's not how a modern audience, I think most of the time is going to understand Medea, uh, but mm -hmm. it might actually be how Euripides and his Athenian audience understood that, that play. Now, at the mm -hmm. same time, Medea is an extraordinarily complex character and the psychology of Medea as you see her sort of getting closer and closer and closer to this final act of infanticide, which is just about the most horrible thing that anybody has ever done in any Greek tragedy. And that's mm -hmm. saying a lot, right? Um, she really has to talk herself into it. And that's part of the tragedy is that she actually loves these children and, and, you know, just how, how much of an effect this has on her, right? So I can sort of see it both ways, right? So, you know, I think Aristophanes is, is wrong to simply say that he hates women and, you know, um, but the, the relationship there is a little bit more complex. Now, mm -hmm. having said all of that, I will also note that Aristophanes never mentions Medea, not once. Mm -hmm. um, the only time he mentions the name of Medea, it's in the play. I was looking at this because I was thinking about it uh, this week, mm -hmm. but um, he mentions Medea once in the comedy piece. And he's referencing the, uh, the tragedy by a guy named Melanthius, who's like a D-list tragedian <laughs> for whom we have like maybe a few lines survive kind of th like just references to his name but he doesn't mention Euripides as Medea which is a really interesting omission at no point yes. right because both here in this play right the women are upset that Euripides is presenting you know bad women they never mention Medea and there's a passage in Aristophanes's frogs as well where Aeschylus tries to take Euripides to task because he presents bad women. And again, Medea doesn't show up there either. Mm -hmm. um, he likes to talk about uh, uh, Phaedra. Um, and I'm sure you've talked about Hippolytus on, on your podcast at, at other times. Um, mm -hmm. But he talks about a very specific version of Phaedra that comes from an earlier play by Euripides, not the Hippolytus play that survives now. Oh. He talks about um, yeah, yeah. Sorry, we can we can go back to that. So the women that he does mention, I was looking at this list. Yeah, and the the women that he singles out as these bad examples. So Phaedra, who in the play by Euripides that we have that survives, she falls in love with her stepson uh, Hippolytus, and she tries to hide it, but the it's all revealed by the nurse. And Hippolytus is so absolutely disgusted by this, and he threatens to uh, reveal Phaedra's unnatural lust um, that she dies by suicide, right, mm -hmm. uh, partway through the play. But that's the second time Euripides has treated that story. There's an original play, and we only have fragments of it. We have a hypothesis for it, I think. 
that tell us what happened. And there it was a Phaedra who was into it, right? That she goes after Hippolytus, right? That she's the adulterous kind of, you know, um, that, like the cougar kind of thing, right? Yeah. That's not actually the right term because she's almost probably no. the same age as Hippolytus, yeah, right? Because say the that's age important. difference yeah. in the marriage. So I don't know exactly what the what the right term is for it, but yeah. um, but this woman who is explicitly trying to engage in an adulterous relationship with her husband's son, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Another woman who gets mentioned is uh, Senebia. I think she only appears in um, Frogs. I don't think she appears in Thesmophoria Zeusa, but very similar situation. She's connected to the story of Bellerophon who flies away on the Pegasus. Um, And same thing, Bellerophon is staying with her husband and she gets all lusty for him and goes after him. And then the third figure, and she is mentioned uh, in in Thesmo, I think, is Melanippe, um, who her greatest crime is that she is, um, you're going to put content warnings, right, on the series, Um, but she's raped by Poseidon and she has twin sons and she tries to hide it. Um, from her father and ends up being sent into exile and the twin sons are exposed and raised by another couple and the wife of that couple then has her own twin sons and she's jealous of the adopted twin sons and she tries to get her twin sons to kill the original twin sons and it doesn't work because they're the sons of Poseidon so they're stronger and and you know basically everybody dies but Melanippe doesn't do anything right like she's it's it's really weird that she gets cited as an example mm-hmm. of as a bad woman. So there are two plays by Euripides that, that tell the Melanippe story. And so we have to assume that this is the version of the story that, that Aristophanes means, and it doesn't make any sense at all. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think there are actually maybe some worse women out there that Euripides or sorry, that Aristophanes could use as, as negative examples here. And he doesn't. And I think, you know, it's, Aristophanes is so frenetic in the way that in so boisterous in the way that he presents his material that I think there actually are lines that he won't cross, but he crosses so many other lines that you don't really notice that he's pulling back from certain things. So mm-hmm. this is something that I was thinking about as I was looking at the, um, you know, the women that he, that he talks about as bad women. And Phaedra, okay, she's bad in that first version. He's conveniently ignoring the second version. Um, Senebia, okay. And then Melanippe shows up and I'm like, what is going on here? So it's mm-hmm. it, it's a weird list. It's a weird list. Well, what interests me about that is that it it almost seems like, and and I think that this comes through in a lot of his, the actual like lines critiquing women, is that his complaints about women tend to be things that, are, are like, I mean, maybe it's just his own kind of judgment about what he decides is so bad because I mean, certainly to us today, they would just be like, Oh, Oh, she's human. Right. Okay. <laughs> she, she's yeah, human and yeah. she's made a couple mistakes and, or stuff has happened to her that isn't her fault mm-hmm. or like Aristophanes feels to me like so, so much of, of Greek mythology broadly, which is these ideas of like, if you're raped by a god, it's your fault. You know, it's like Hera yeah, going after yeah. all of the women yep. instead of the men and stuff like that, right? That's like right. he just feels yeah. to me yep. like that. And and one and one thing Julie brought up brought up too last week is 
is that he was quite conservative in terms of his like him as a person. And that feels very true to me in the Aristophanes was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that does seem to be the political or the scholarly consensus. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, Mm -hmm. go ahead. No, no, I mean, it just it. Yeah, it, it, it is feels like that in those moments because his complaints are like, oh, she, you know, had an affair or she had just like had feelings towards somebody else or thought about having an affair. Like it's really benign stuff. So it just feels like that level of Athenian conservative nature of just if your wife is not perfectly at home, you know, not seeing a single other person every moment of her life, then she is inherently a bad person. Like that's what it feels to me. What so much of it comes down to, and I like, you know, when I teach this course on comedy, one of the you know taglines I put in the in the syllabus description is that you can tell a lot about people by what they laugh at, right? Mm. And what really seems to get at Athenian men is the concept of the legitimacy of their children. That seems to mm. be what they obsess over more than absolutely anything else. Um, so almost everything that the women are accused of doing or described as doing in Thesmophoria at Zeusai comes down to some form of theft, right? So they're taking things from the pantry um, They're, you know, um, but what they're really stealing are legitimate children, right? So mm-hmm. if they're having adulterous affairs, they're having babies that don't belong to their husbands. And that's not what wives are for, right? They're, they're for, you know, only one thing. And indeed, like that's actually the the marriage oath is the the father gives the woman to the bride and he says, I give you this girl for the production of legitimate children. That's the whole marriage oath. There's none of this. I do. I do. There's no yeah. the woman has no role except to get on the cart and be rolled away to her new home. Um, yeah. So, so much of the obsession around this is about the production of legitimate children. And if you look at, you know, the kinsman um, or Nazilicus, whichever you're calling him in, in your translation, mm-hmm. um, when he gives that absolutely ridiculous speech at the assembly, right? We shouldn't be mad at Euripides for giving a few things away. We do all these other things that, you know, nobody ever talks about. Um, and it, he escalates and it's pretty much the last thing that he talks about is baby swapping. Yeah. Um, the, the woman who has a baby and it's not a boy. So they go out and they, they find a slave who's had a, who's had a baby boy and they, they trade babies and then they show it to the husband. Oh, looks just like you. Right. Um, even his little pecker is the right shape. Right. Which that's not how genetics work, but you know, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it, so much of it is that's the obsession, um, there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, it's really it's interesting to look at the things he does complain about. And especially when you think about, yeah, how he doesn't mention Medea at all, who, you know, for all that we do see her as like a fascinating, complex character, like, yes, Mm -hmm. is obviously the most objectively bad, like complex and fascinating aside, she still kills her children and uh, other people. You know, she's not, you know, she's got some flaws. I love her (laughs) to the ends of the earth, but I can see why she is objectively bad. Yeah, and maybe it's just it's just not funny, right? You know, yeah, um, yeah, true. <laughs> women, men going home from the theater and looking in the pantries and looking in the bedrooms—that's funny, ha ha ha. But like men going home and looking for their dead children is maybe that's just a bridge too far for for even Aristophanes. 
Yeah. Well, and what, what interested me too um, was the, the use of the very long passages sort of somewhat taken at right out of the Helen and, and mm-hmm. sort of why that would be like I, when I first read it, I thought, you know, it feels so odd because he's mostly just kind of either directly quoting it or paraphrasing it, but he's not, he's not like directly satirizing it. It felt to me. Um, but then yep. Julie did point out also that he picked like the woman that Euripides has talked about, who is, I mean, Helen of all people, mm-hmm. and he made her good. And so, of course, that yep. in- inherently is the complaint is he made a woman like Helen good. And so that's inherently, you know, him him doing bad things to women broadly. It's it's so hard to kind of wrap your head around because it's so, I mean, yeah, I love yeah, Helen yeah. also. <laughs> um, but it's also important to note that that gambit fails, Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the play, and it sounds like you talked about this with Julie last week, but we get four tragic parodies in a row. We get the Telephus parody, we get the Palamedes parody, then Helen, then Andromeda, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And none of them actually work. Um, they're all rescue themed um plays uh but none of them actually work and the only time that euripides is successful in achieving resolution with the women is when he actually just comes and talks to them and then he gets the um he comes dressed you know as a woman yet again right he gets nasilicus the kinsman away from that scythian archer by using an explicitly uh comic plot device they're gonna get a um a flute girl and entrance, right, uh, seduce the Scythian archer, right? And so he's like, oh, yeah, me so horny. And he goes off, um, you know, to do his thing. And that's when they get away is when they use a, a, a you know, a sexually ribald comic plot, right? But you get four tragic plots that don't work. Um, right. It is interesting that the last two are both, you know, based on virtuous women. You're right. Like it's, it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's quite a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, really relevant plays as well because they would have been performed like the year prior both of them which is interesting in itself that's right yeah yeah three of them three of them are very recent and then telephus Mm -hmm. is a bit of an outlier in that it's quite Mm. old by this point it's 27 years old um oh wow but yeah the telephus is it's a funny one um i think it might actually be aristophanes's favorite play um He parodies it a couple of times. He does it in Acarnians, which is the first play that we have that survives from him. So that's in 425. So the play is 13 years old. It's in 438 at the time. That's a little mm-hmm. bit old. Um, but mm-hmm. this time around, it's 27 years old. And he doesn't even name the play in the in the parody. Um, he just kind of expects his audience to know what's going on. But he tells mm-hmm. us we're going to parody the Palamedes and we're going to parody the Helen and we're going to parody the, uh, the Andromeda. Um, you know, yeah, no, I've got a theory about um, the Telephus and I did get, I, I gave a paper years ago on this at the Greek drama five conference, which was at UBC, but um, mm. nobody laughed me out of the room. So, you know, I haven't <laughs> printed it out yet, but um, no, if Aristophanes is born somewhere around 450, we don't know precisely, but that's a pretty good guess. It means he's about 12 years old when the Telephus comes out, this this play that he parodies a number of times. And my guess is that maybe it's the first time he ever went to the theater and it's the hmm. first tragedy that he ever saw. And he like it, it just stuck so hard in his brain that he can never quite 
let it go. And in fact, most of the tragedies that he talks about, so, you know, we've already talked about Melanippe and Stenabia and the first version of Phaedra. Those are all plays from the 430s. They're all plays from when he's really young, when he's a kid. Mm. And I think he's kind of got this idea of what Greek tragedy is and who Euripides is based on like his teenage years of going to the theater. That's really interesting. I like that. And it, I mean, I know Euripides' career is really fascinating too, in that um, when I covered the Helen last year, I had on um, Toff Marshall, who talked about how from that time when, when the Helen and the Andromeda, which I think was yep. 412. Um, yep, that's he, right. Yep. Yeah, right. He only had women choruses from that time on Mm -hmm. and that is my favorite thing in the world and I think about it all of the time but it feels to me that like there was some kind of progression in Euripides's career but also in his own like thoughts towards women and that he became interested in telling their stories in a more like I think realistic and like honest and and complex kind of way and it it almost feels to me like maybe if if aristophanes you know found theater when he was young with those older plays that maybe he's almost taking issue with the changes in euripides's attitude and style towards women and i wonder if that's why he also kind of talks about like the helen and the andromeda who are who are both the andromeda of course is is fragmentary but i like the helen is this complete rewrite of Helen yep. of Sparta and Troy and making her into this like completely different character who is so much more interesting and sympathetic and, and just like virtuous and good. And that kind of in itself feels like something that could make a conservative man mad. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, if you sort of think of Aristophanes as, you know, a little shit, but a little shit <laughs> who wants to win um, prizes at the Lanaya and the Dionysia, you know, I think there's value to him in citing some of these older plays of Euripides because it kind of sticks in his eye, right? Like it's kind of a poke in the eye to Euripides to judge him by these plays that he wrote decades ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you get to things like the Hel- the Helen and the Andromeda, they have the virtue of not only they they seem to have had quite an impact um, when they when they came out, but they're recent enough that everyone in the audience is going to very clearly recognize what the parody is and and what's being made fun of here, and they're going to have a pretty good idea of the ways in which Aristophanes is manipulating it to get new results, right? Mm-hmm. So. In that sense, you know, he's he's very crafty in that he wants to do his Telephus parody, but he does that very early. You know, it's the first of these four sequences. And then he does the Palamedes very quickly. And then he does, he, he spends most of his time on that Helen and then the Andromeda parodies, both of which are, they've got some unique staging um, things going on. They were probably visually distinctive. Um, I know Toff will have talked about, you know, costuming and, you know, what the the set design for Helen might have looked like. Those are things that he loves to talk about. And so they're, they're visually distinctive and easy to parody, but even more important, they're easy for an audience to get, mm-hmm. um, you know, everything, you know, when we look at the way that Aristophanes structures his plays, 
even the ones that have kind of deep political engagement. So WASPs, for example, takes on the structure of the judicial system in Athens, which doesn't sound funny, but it actually is. He buries all of that in the first half of the play. And the second half of the play is all about the consequences of this guy running around Athens, basically being a jerk because he's not going to jury duty anymore. And you end with a dance party in which he challenges Carcinus, a a Greek tragedian. And again, you get, you know, Aristophanic comedy versus versus tragedy. Um, But he's very clever at thinking about, you know, the sequencing of things that he does in the play. So he always ends in ways that will engage the audience more. So if he's got stuff that he wants, but he thinks the audience might not be as into, it comes early in the play. And then when he's got stuff that he thinks the audience will respond to really well, that comes late in the play. Um, Mm. And you almost always end with some kind of procession or parade because it's comedy, right? You got to remember the fun bits. So you put those really fun bits right at the end, right? So if Mm -hmm. he had reversed those parodies and finishes with the telephys, some people are going to get that one, but not everyone. Some people are going to be like, oh, yeah, he's doing telephys again, right? But he builds up and... You know, basically everybody in the audience is going to be like, oh, yeah, Helen, I was there. I saw that. Right. And and they're going to have some sense of you know, a, a pretty clear sense of, of what's going on. Mm-hmm. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily. 
as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's interesting, too, because it also just ends up with it being like, like, uh, I'm sure it's not coincidental, but it's awfully convenient for for Aristophanes to be writing this entire play about how Euripides, you know, treats women and then have the year prior he he did two plays dedicated to women. And and one of the things that came up in when I talked to to top about the Helen is, is that like, these are two plays where I mean, less so with Helen, definitely with Andromeda, where like, they're not the most famous people being featured like it's not called the Menelaus Menelaus is like a bumbling sort of he's nice but he's very different from the Iliad Menelaus in the Helen and then he's a he's a he's a wiener yeah 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 Uh, yeah like I like him because I dislike him in the Iliad but like he's he's really odd he's the most popular character in Greek tragedy nobody else has Mm. more appearances than him in our surviving Greek tragedy I think or I think Orestes has a tie. I think it's both. I okay. think they both appear in eight different tragedies if you count across wow. what, what survives, right? Um, because he's associated with Helen and he's associated yeah. with Agamemnon. And, you know, he's a bit of a doofus, but he's a connected doofus, right? Yeah. Uh, even, in the, even in the Odyssey, right? He's going to go in yeah. book four. We find <laughs> out he gets to go and live on the island of the blessed. Because he's married to Helen. Like it's, he's a very, very lucky doofus. Yeah. 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 I mean, I have my own, like, could talk forever also about the the Helen yep. and Menelaus of the Odyssey versus the Iliad. But um, yeah, the, yeah it, it's interesting also to have the Andromeda where it's like, you would think it'd be about Perseus, but it's about Andromeda. And it's it's one of those ones where I desperately wish we had it for that reason, because I'm so interested yeah, in how and that comes about. Really, the best evidence we have for the Andromeda is this play, is the Thesmophoria mm-hmm. Zeusai. So if you, you know, pick up a, a fragments of Greek tragedy, you know, text, whether it's the Lobe or the Aris and Phyllis or whatever, right? Almost all of the fragments that we have for this play 
it it's that dialogue it's that that well, I guess that the monologue that um, the kinsman initially gives, and then the echo scene, which is a really weird scene. I don't know what your thing was thinking there. Um, yeah. And then, and then you get the arrival of Perseus, presumably on the mechane, right on the on the crane. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so again, you know, he's saving the Andromeda parody for the end because it's got the most dramatic use of stage machinery uh, of all four of them. So it's it's you know it's pretty amazing, yeah. Yeah. So that that reminds me of something we we talked about or just touched on earlier, but I'm really interested yep. in in this idea that Euripides didn't make or wanted people not to believe in the gods or or some that whole realm. Like you were saying that it's introduced in this, which makes sense to me. But mm-hmm. is there anything beyond this? Cuz to me that also feels kind of wild cuz he uses the gods in his plays a lot. Seem like I I find yeah. his use of the gods more interesting than the other tragedians, but he certainly uses them a lot. He does use them a lot. He never questions their existence. Um, What I think is going on there, again, like as his relationship with women is more complex than what Aristophanes wants to make it out to be, I think it's more complex here too. So Mm -hmm. he does have characters who question not the existence of the gods, but the kind of morality of the gods. So the Bellerophon story has Bellerophon flying on Pegasus and mounting an assault on Olympus because he doesn't like what the gods are doing. Um, Mm. Even in some of our extant tragedy, so at the end of um, Bacchae, for example, Cadmus Mm. really calls Dionysus to task. You know, this is a really shitty thing you guys are doing to us. (laughs) And boy, does this punishment not fit the crime. And he's like, yeah, I'm a god, man. Like, of course it fits the right. So really kind of questioning that kind of, of ethical behavior of the gods and in some ways mm-hmm. foreshadowing some of the things that, that Plato will say about the gods, for example. And, and he's, mm. you know, he famously kicks poetry out of his Republic and it's partly because they tell stories about gods behaving badly. And that's not a good moral instruction for good citizens, but a lot of it comes back to, you know, now that we've talked about Plato, we can talk about mm-hmm. Socrates mm-hmm. and, Euripides has this reputation for being, he's associated with some of the sophistic intellectuals of his day, especially um, Socrates, right? And of course, Socrates is going to be executed for corruption of the youth um, in, you know, what year are we in? If we're in 411, yeah, we're actually not that far. We're only 13 years from the execution of, of Socrates. Hmm. Um and of course, Socrates gets mocked by Aristophanes in the clouds, right? As this clever, you know, sort of sophistic um, um, character who believes in false gods all the time, which is the other big, um, the other big um, accusation that's laid against Socrates. Plato and Socrates both say this is total bullshit, right? So if you look at the Apology by Plato, which is supposed to be Socrates' last speech, he actually calls out the clouds as painting Socrates with the, with this false brush. Hmm. And Euripides is kind of associated with those guys. And so it becomes kind of an easy target to you know, sort of to paint him with that very broad brush of this guy who's so intellectual that he rejects the traditional gods, right? And that's not what he's doing. You know, at at best, 
he's questioning our relationship with the gods and the morality of the gods and, and, you know, what that power dynamic means, um, you know, in ethical terms for us. Right. And this goes all the way back, like the, the, um, his play uh, Hippolytus very much with Aphrodite and, and Artemis basically playing, you know, chess with human characters and everybody dies because of it. So, yeah, so it, 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 it's, you know, a good modern analogy might actually be if you think of the concept of, you know, wokeness right on the internet, mm-hmm. you know, progressive leftists, they never describe themselves as woke, right? It's, you know, the term is used primarily by, you know, right-wing trolls who are trying to own the libs as it were, right? And it doesn't really matter that they can't quite define what woke is. And it doesn't really matter that, you know, the value set there, like they don't have to, they don't have to do much to really establish it. They can just use it as a label. Right. And it, Mm -hmm. it, um, it's not about engaging with anybody on the progressive left. It's all about, you know, scoring points with your right wing audience. Right. There's, I think there's a little bit of that here as well, that you just kind Mm -hmm. of throw this, he's this sophistic intellectual who rejects the gods and it's, and it just you know, puts him in a corner with Socrates who is also falsely labeled in this way. And some of the other intellectuals of the day. So I, I, I think that's probably where that's coming from. Yeah. It, it feels almost the same as the, the issues with women where it feels like it's more just that, he is not in the same vein as the traditional conservative Athenian man. And thus. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 Um, And and now it feels like the reason why he's so interesting is all the reasons why he was like getting in trouble back then or why he was being criticized. Yeah. And, you know, and Euripides, I mean, his relationship with Athens is interesting he doesn't win very many victories at the city Dionysia mm-hmm. when he's alive, but he's allowed to produce plays with increasing frequency. Um, most of the plays that we have and most of the titles that survive that that we've lost, but we know the dates for, come later in his career rather than earlier. So, mm-hmm. you know, when he starts out in 455, He's producing a play, you know, once every three, four, five years, as far as we can tell. But by the time, or sorry, a trilogy every three, four, five years. Um, but in the last sort of 10 to 15 years, he's up almost every year or every other year kind of thing. Like he's he's producing with much greater frequency, which tells us mm-hmm. that somebody out there wants to see plays by Euripides. Mm-hmm. Because he's so good. God, they're so they're the best. Um, <laughs> very grateful for that. I talk a lot about the like the alphabet plays on my show too, and just how oh, very lucky good. Yep. we are to have all of those. Uh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Which again um, includes Medea, right? Poor Medea, who's so popular today, but she's always she's always excluded. Uh, she, no, no, she's a she's, she's in, a slut no, no. play. Sorry, no, she's a yeah, slut okay. play. That's right. It does include the Helen though, which I I think we're it does you know, include very Helen. lucky. That's to right. Have. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, I mean, this, I want, well, I'm very grateful to have had you on for this as well. I feel like yep. all of this is so important to understanding this play because me looking at it was just me going like, I don't know how to fully tell you all, all the horrible things that he's saying. It's very difficult. So this context around it is so important and 
it gives yeah. Aristophanes a lot more credit, but also just makes it all way more enjoyable. Um, yeah, I mean, Aristophanes yeah. is, he's hes very, very talented as a player. Like, he's not flawless, right? So when he gets a hold of a joke, he never lets it go. And, yeah. like, I think even the ancient audience must have got tired of it at times. There's some joke sequences. I don't know if there are any in Thesmo, but, like, in Acarnians and a couple of the other plays knights have a couple of sequences where he makes like a kind of pun and he just kind of keeps repeating it and repeating it. And you're like, dude, like let's, let's move on. Um, <laughs> <get> but he's <laughs> very, very good at other things. Um, he's very, he's extraordinarily good at visual metaphor, even though we don't see a lot mm. of that in Thesmophoria Zeusai, but taking, you know, abstract ideas and representing them as a visual idea. So, you know, er, uh, Socrates's weird philosophical ideas appear as the chorus of clouds um, or in um, his play about angry jurors, the wasps and the jurors are depicted as wasps because they move in big groups and they sting and they, they get angry all the time. Um, mm. And, you know, I've already mentioned, right. The very skillful way that he threads together these two seemingly disparate sort of, you know, uh, competitions, right? Man versus woman, comedy versus tragedy. Um, and it plays out um, in this extraordinarily, you know, uh, well thought out way. Like it's, it's, it's pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's important to note because it is one of those things that's difficult on, on my end to come through with just because it, it, narrative trying to turn a comedy play into a narrative is like nearly impossible i think i'm gonna yep. stop trying um but i'm glad to have people on to talk about his plays at the very least um but it, the one thing that interests me because it you know talking about it this way it sounds like his comedy is so so sm smart and interesting and then it also is sort of all of that is kind of juxtaposed with his real love of like bathroom humor for lack of a better word like the dick jokes are that's you know, right throughout yeah this play and like a lot of sort of absurdist kind of comedy as well yep yeah yeah and that's another thing that he does extremely well um so i mentioned earlier like i've acted in a play of aristophanes i've directed i've produced a couple um mm. and one of the really interesting things about aristophanes from you know a staging perspective the jokes, some of the jokes are impossible to sell, but there are so many of them on so many different registers. It's like if you can land maybe every third joke, hmm. the audience is going to be laughing through the whole play and they're going to remember, you know, they're only going to remember a third of the jokes that they heard, but they're going to like the third that, that, that they came away with. Um, and the way that he's very skillfully, like you say, like he can do this complex political satire, he can do this sophisticated literary analysis that you get in, in Thesmo and Frogs. But throughout the whole time, these guys who are performing this political satire and this literary analysis, their dicks are literally hanging out and swinging around through the whole through the whole production. And you get fart jokes, you get um, sex jokes, you get Right. Everything from the most base scatological humor all the way up to the most sophisticated parody and satire. And he just squashes it all in and it 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 fits in some way. It's 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 mm -hmm. actually pretty spectacular. Yeah. So that that brings me to a question I'd had, because it's also interesting. I mean, this is like the ongoing question with all of Greek 
um, theater, which is that the idea of staging. So do we know yeah. for certain a lot about how he would stage things? Because I've been reading two different translations. Like I quoted the theateratus on the show, but I've also been reading a lot of the the Stephen Halliwell translation. Um, and yeah. mostly because it had like end notes, which were interesting, but mm -hmm. it, they, they don't seem to agree on much, uh, like in terms of even naming characters and who played what. Yeah. Um, so those are all major considerations. So most of what we know mm -hmm. about how the plays were staged comes from references to Greek tragedy. So when people mm -hmm. actually do talk a little bit about tragedy, like Aristotle talks about it in his poetics, for example. He always talks about tragedy, and then we have to extrapolate. So a really good example, and you're going to have to have Toff Marshall on again, because this is a thing for him, but um, tragedy was played with three actors and only three actors. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if a character walks off the stage and you need a, or if, if, if you've got three actors and you need a fourth character, one of those actors has to go away, put on a new mask and costume and come back. We don't know if the three actor rule holds for comedy. It looks like it mm. doesn't. Um, like I said, Toff Marshall has some sophisticated arguments about quick changes and about how that's funny. You know, not everyone will will buy that argument. Um, by the time you get to new comedy 100 years later, it's back to being a three-actor stageable mm. performance. So we, we don't know. Questions about how many doors are available to Aristophanes is a big question. Every single mm. Greek tragedy that we have can use a single door. This is the palace of Theoclymenus. This is the palace of Agamemnon or the cave of Philoctetes or, you know, whatever. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, a number of tragedies appear to need or repurpose doors, um, you know, and then we get a play like Thesmo. Where does the Skene come in? It gets used as the house of Agathon at the start and we mm -hmm. roll him out. Um, he gets put away. Um, at some point, the kinsman kind of walks away and comes back to the space. And now it's the space of the women's festival and the Panix. But the um, the Scythian archer goes inside somewhere um, to have his way with the flute girl. And so that the mm -hmm. the stage space, the stage building, the door has been repurposed in some way. Um, mm -hmm. And then the the other the other way that we know about staging is through comedy because it's so metatheatrical and self-referential um so there's you know there's a lot of open question about how these things were staged tragedy appears to have been quite austere not a lot of props the costumes would have been elaborate but 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 fairly singular um and then we get to comedy which is just an absolute mess of props and sight gags and scene changes all the time and quick changes with characters it's a very common phenomenon in Aristophanes to have a whole bunch of characters in the second half of your play. And again, mm -hmm. you know, I, I keep bringing up Toff's argument, but his argument is that part of the humor is that the actors have to keep running off to, to play these new, these new characters. So it's a lot mm -hmm. more, it's a lot more frenetic, but a lot of what we, what we have to assume, you know, we have to either extrapolate from tragedy or try and kind of figure out, you know, what's going on from the cues in the text, which, Oh, Okay, that reminds me, you, were, you said something else earlier as well. The mm -hmm. scripts that we have don't give us mm -hmm. character names. All they typically give us is a little, uh, we call it a lemma. It's just a little line that says character change, character change, character oh, change. Wow. And so, um, and this play, Thesmophoria Zeusai, is a particularly complex one. None of the characters are actually named. We have to figure out who is who. 
So Euripides, he's mostly easy because people say, hey, Euripides. And um, Agathon's easy because Aristophanes has probably never had an Agathon mask on stage before. So he mm. wants his audience to know, we're going to the house of Agathon now, get ready, mm. right? So that everybody, when they see the mask, they're not trying to figure out who it is. They immediately start jeering at Agathon or wherever. Nobody ever actually calls the kinsman by his name. So we don't know mm. what his name is actually supposed to be. Um, some translations will call him Nazilicus because there's a biographical tradition that says Euripides had a father-in-law named Nazilicus. And so sometimes if you know if you've seen that. Um yeah. and but then we're in Thesmo where it gets really confusing is with all the women who talk through yeah. the assembly scene and then when they're trying to track down um the male infiltrator and then in some of the parodies as well, it's clear that it's a female speaking for the most part. But is it supposed to be the same female that we saw earlier on? So sometimes you get first woman, second woman. There are a couple names like Mika and Cretilla that get um, that get said. And so, mm-hmm. you know, how much, how many of those lines are actually supposed to be Mika? Is she on stage through all of these scenes, or does she come on just for the um, the assembly, and then it's other women who talk? Um, and sometimes we don't even know if it's, you know, the women or Nazilicus or what, if it's some of those really fast banters back and forth, um, it can mm. be very, very difficult. So it's not uncommon to pick up one translation and you get, you know, one list of characters and then you get another list of characters in another translation. Mm-hmm. It's funny because, I mean, this is something I feel like I have grasped in tragedy. And I talk about it on the show all the time of how stage directions and things like that are all you know, have to be invented by the translator um, or, or sort of like, in, you know, fig- like they, you know, they make really educated guesses on, on all right, of that yeah. stuff. But in comedy, it feels like, I mean, I assumed it was the same thing, but it does feel so much more difficult. And so hearing all of these descriptions, it does sound like it was considerably more difficult to figure all of that out. It would be because, you know, comedy... There's more than just like comedy is more than just the spoken word, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if there can be all kinds of things that 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 are going on, and it's it's very clear. Like there, we've got lots of little scenes and moments in Aristophanes where it seems pretty clear that Aristophanes thinks that something really funny has happened, mm. and we don't get it. And sometimes mm. maybe we're just missing a reference or we don't understand something, but you know, as often as not, it might be some piece of physical humor that, that we just don't see. Right. And we have to make lots of different inferences about what's going on. Right. Sometimes it's really easy, right. When one of the women in Cleisthenes are looking for, um, trying to prove that, that Nazilicus is male and they're chasing his phallus back and forth between his legs. Like, that's pretty yeah. clear and easy to see what's going on. Um, but in other places, we don't know. We don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's extra interesting, especially if you can't even apply the three-actor rule. Then it just adds even more questions to that, whereas that that at least like provides some kind of inherent structure in the tragedies that we can usually figure things out and even i mean in a lot of the tragedies you can usually usually even figure out who's like the first actor second actor third actor that's because right of all yeah. Of those things. yeah it's all like a puzzle but 
it feels like or I, at least I feel like I understood the puzzle involved in tragedy and now yeah I'm and even even well, if we knew yeah even if we knew one way or another comedy does follow the three actor rule or it doesn't right and, and we don't mm-hmm. we don't know so we sort mm-hmm. of speculate and then comedy of course has so many more characters right Aristophanes mm-hmm. is so willing to bring a character on for a single scene because it's funny in that single scene right you know and then especially like I said you know towards the end of his plays we tend to get sort of these frenetic visits from multiple characters birds does it um, wasps does it Acarnians does it others do as well and they're all on for like just a few lines right and they're running on and off and on and off and and sort of trying to keep track of all of that and and infer it all from just what the characters say and you know sometimes it you know, it doesn't matter that much, but sometimes it can have interpretive consequences. Um, mm-hmm. Some versions of uh, Lysistrata, for example, have her leave much earlier than other versions of Lysistrata or translations mm-hmm. of Lysistrata, um, mm-hmm. whether she's actually on stage for the final party scene or not kind of makes a difference what you think about that character. And some translations yeah. will have her come on and deliver some lines. Other translations will assign those lines to somebody else. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, the one that stood out to me most between the two translations I've been looking at is Echo, actually, because in one of them, it has Euripides playing Echo, which seems to me to fit because he played Menelaus and then he plays Perseus later. And then in one of my translations, it's just like Echoes on stage. And I just think, what would that mean? Like, because it doesn't. Yeah. And like Aristophanes doesn't feel like the type of person to just I mean, certainly in this play to just have this character come on who without any other reasoning, like would have to be the goddess or some form, but that doesn't really make any sense. And that was sort of fascinating to me to question whether it's echo or Euripides as echo. And if it's not Euripides or echo, who is it? Yeah, yeah. actually I, I, that's a good point. I had never, I had never seen a translation that didn't have it as Euripides providing the voice of echo. Um, And of course there's all kinds of like, do we actually, do we actually see who's voicing echo? Like, yeah, we right. Or is it just right? an echo? Echo yeah. is just an echo, right? Um, yeah. Or do you have Euripides sort of sticking his head around the stage building and kind of looking out and repeating lines and, you know, which is actually pretty funny, right? If, if that's how yeah. it's going. I think you can you can get a lot of physical um, humor out of that. I had, I'd never seen a translation that um, uh, that did it without Euripides. But I think, like, if you look at the text, it doesn't explicitly say... I mean, we know that Euripides has appeared as Menelaus already. We mm-hmm. know that he's going to appear as Perseus. So it kind of makes sense that when you've got these extra uh, roles to um, to assign, that it could be that it could be Euripides again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it makes the most sense because if the whole point of those two parodies is that they're parodying Euripides' plays, like if he is appearing as two of the characters like why would he not be the third it seems bizarre otherwise and it might even just be like this is in the theodoretus translation and there's also a lot of formatting issues because it's just on that poetry and translation site Um, yeah they have like there's there's some like flaws on that site so i'm I'm even wondering whether that's just like missing because there's a few points where they clearly change lines of somebody but they haven't actually put the person's name and it's it's just yeah yeah and 
those, you know, it's a fairly loose translation in some ways as well. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean it's like not, it. you know, interesting in some ways, but, um, but it does. Yeah. I, I use some of the poetry and translation courses, uh, um, uh, pieces in some of my classes, um, mm-hmm. just cause they're free. Right. And, yeah. um, it's good for the students to see different, different, um, translations, but, but yeah, yeah, it could just be, yeah. Something missing from the, from the site. Yeah. Normally I don't use that one. Like I'll often look at it for reference. Cause I usually try to use like two or three translations at least for every time yep. I do a play since I don't speak ancient or don't know ancient Greek. Um, yep. but that one specifically, it was very difficult to find accessible copies of this play so it became like one of the yeah. first times i've had to kind of resort to other things yeah and i remember <laughs> i suggested to you the translations of jeff henderson but they are oh, did you yeah <laughs> they are but they are expensive to track down mm-hmm. um he's got um he's got a it's a wonderful volume from routledge um staging women i think it's called and it's three plays of aristophanes it's, it's lysistrata and it's thesmophoria zeusai and it's um the women of the assembly Ecclesia and Zeusai. Right. Um, but, and it, but it's expensive and it's mm. the only expensive book that I assign to my um, love, sex and death class because his translation is so good. It's off putting sometimes because Jeff simply doesn't pull any punches on the language, mm. you know, to give you a, a good example. Um, Again, like I assigned this text about a year ago to my love, sex and death class. And I got an email, even though I always have blanket content warnings. um, Mm -hmm. There's a very early on when they first encounter um, uh, Agathon. Mm -hmm. Nazilicus calls him the F word. And I don't mean fuck. Mm. I mean, the, Mm -hmm. you know, the the homophobic slur that should refer to a bundle of sticks. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of comes out of nowhere, right? Like it's, it, it, it's just there. It just drops into the middle of this. And this student had, you know, mm-hmm. and it was a student who was, you know, who had read Aristophanes before, but they were just mm-hmm. really, you know, not prepared to have that word there. And to be honest, mm-hmm. I had forgotten that it, that it was in there at that point, but it's exactly the right word to use at that, mm-hmm. at that point in the text. It really is a very close approximation of what the original Greek says, which is meant to be a slur. Like it, it really yeah. is. Um, so, yeah, you know, um, so I really like Jeff's translations for that because they don't pull those punches and you get a really honest feel, but they're, they're, they're tough to find unless you get the lobes. Yeah. He, um, he also does mm. the lobe classical um, library translations. And I remember seeing him talk once and, he considered a career highlight that he got the Loeb classical library to print the word fuck in text. In print. <laughs> he was so happy about like that. Accomplishment. Yeah. I yeah. respect that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, this, this play kind of crept up on me in terms of when I was covering it. Normally I can yep. like, I'm always happy to, I like to have buy fancy translations of things. Um, yep. but that's good to know generally. Uh, yeah. Oh, I mean, translation is just so fascinating. That's why I always try to make sure I'm looking at more than one. Um, it's a good approach, theory, especially with comedy. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and any of the, the tragedies too, because I mean, the language can vary so much in terms of like, yep. the, the kind of the emphasis or, or just That's like right. the words yeah. coming out of it. Yeah. It's important. And also I just find it interesting. Like I, I 
prefer that because I get so much more context and often like I can I know enough Greek that I can also have questions and then go find it on Perseus and you know figure out a word myself at the very least so that's always kind of a a thrill yeah yeah Yeah. and you know like I said you know I guess when we started all of this like you know again Mm -hmm. you're right like tragedy does engage in wordplay and there are complex Mm -hmm. ideas that are being presented so sometimes yeah the translation can can make a difference but the, yeah, but then when you get with Aristophanes, like it changes so quickly and comedy relies it like it's so topical and and even senses of humor. Right. Um, like I remember the first time I ever read this play, it was the old Penguin translation and it was clearly written by some British guy in the 1940s or 50s who thought that Cockney was really funny. And so you get like all these weird lines that are like almost in you know, impenetrable um, linguistically and they just don't make a, you know, everybody's a bloke and that's supposed to be funny. And, you know, maybe it was in 1950, (laughs) whatever. Um, But, you know, comedy engages in so much colloquialism and slang and, and topical language that the, translations of comedy go stale or at least aristophanes it, it's different yeah. from menander whose language is very simple and, and basic in a lot of ways old translations of menander look pretty much like new translations of menander but it yeah no it, it's a good idea to look at multiple translations for sure yeah well and, and because my show is something that gets accessed by people who aren't in academia at all and just anyone yep. who is interested in this it's also i think like it's important that I do it, but I also talk a lot about translations and the importance because so often I'll have listeners who are like, I want to read the Odyssey. I'll just pick up this cheap translation at a used bookstore. And I'm like, I mean, I respect your need to do that, but you're probably not going to like it. <laughs> I, I always and- recommend, yeah, that you pick up the book and read a couple of pages in the store. And yeah. if you're still reading after two pages, then yeah, go ahead, grab it, right? Um, there are some older translations of the Odyssey. Lattimore's is still really readable, um, mm-hmm. but yeah. you're right. Like there are some that, you know, um, are, you know, and even, you know, companies like Amazon repackage old translations and try yes. and sell them for profit. And they might have been composed in like 1810 or something Yeah, that you're just, you're just wasting your money, even if it's not very much money, it's still, it's still being wasted. So yeah, always read yeah. a couple of pages if you're unsure. Exactly. I think the first one I ever picked up of Iliad or the Odyssey, I don't even remember what the translation was, but I just remember that they didn't Latinize the spellings. And so just like uh, that yeah. alone, I was like, okay. I mean, it was like, you know, instead of Achilles, it was like Achilles with a K yeah. and an H. And, yeah. and like, and I was, I'm there like, oh God, this is not the way to get into these works. I was like, probably. Yeah. And there, there but. can be a place for those translations, but, um, for sure. but yeah, accessibility can absolutely be an issue, especially in a, yeah. in a poem like the, uh, uh, the Iliad, which is wall to wall long names. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like I love the Greek spellings, but back before I knew the Greek spellings, I was just looking at this, like, Oh my God, what am I even reading? Yeah. 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 Uh, well, honestly, this has been, so incredibly fascinating. I'm so thrilled to have had you on because you really added so much to the understanding of this. Good. Place. Yeah, I, I hope so. Oh. Right. Like it's, um, oh, you know, it's yeah. it's fun for me to do as well, like and to get outside of the academy a little bit, um, even though I, I talked about my university classes a lot. But um, but I hope it, it helps, does bring something. Though. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Come take my classes is really the lesson to be learned here. But um, yeah. 
you know, but <laughs> no, no, Canada, this was, this I was, I know, I know. Um, no, this was super fun to do. I, you know, I hope it's useful for you. I hope it's useful for your listeners. I, uh, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> Aristophanes is not always everybody's <laughs> cup of tea, but you know, it is something that's really worth reading because it's, it's so, it's so informative. We have to be very careful about, you know, sort of accepting everything at face value. And we have to recognize, you know, the rampant misogyny and yeah, Aristophanes is obnoxious, but really he's kind of the obnoxious mouthpiece of an obnoxious society. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, you know, and I like I think about how much my own understanding of antiquity and the ancient Greeks and Romans has changed over the last 20, 25 years. And, you know, I come from that era, like I'm not that old, but I'm getting there. Right. And, you know, like we idolized the Greeks and the Romans when I started out. And mm-hmm. now I think, you know, we do a much better job of contextualizing and understanding exactly what it is that we're talking about. The Greeks are endlessly fascinating, but they were also quite awful in some very fundamental ways. Like we, we have made progress, I think, since then. It's mm-hmm. always worth keeping in mind. And Aristophanes is one of the ways that we remember that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I mean, even like my BA is, you know, somewhere over a decade old. And even that, like that amount of time is everything has changed so much the way yeah. I learned in my classes versus now. And I mean, I'm, I'm certainly glad to be kind of like a part of that, especially in terms of sharing it with people who aren't in in academia. Um, yep. But it is, yeah, it, it changes so much. And it is especially important in, in these kind of contexts. So, but I mean, and that's certainly what I talk about all the time is like the the misogyny of it all, but also having the, the de- not defense of Aristophanes, but the, the like, just the other ways to appreciate him that I wasn't able to see. So thank you yeah, for providing yeah. a lot of Yep. Yeah. Um, well, is there uh, anything you want to share with my listeners in terms of like, do you want them to follow you on Twitter or read anything by you or anything you want to share like that? I, I do have a Twitter account. I'm not like I'm more of a lurker and Twitter is collapsing anymore in yeah. these days anyway. <laughs> like it's it's so bad. I'm just watching it burn down. I um, no, I, you know, I, I don't think I do. I probably should have a better media presence than I do, but um, yeah, go away and actually read some Aristophanes is, is my advice. Um, yeah. You know, keep in mind that it is going to offend at times, but it also is a window into a different world. Um, mm-hmm. And there is stuff there that is still funny, even, you know, um, once you filter out all the other stuff, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah. 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 Oh, well, thank you. That's been, that's wonderful. (laughs) Oh, nerds. Didn't that conversation make all of the difference? Honestly, I'm just so thrilled to have had these chats and generally that I get to have conversations all the time anyway, but I say that. Often. In this case, I think it really turned the whole series around, though. Like, I cannot imagine these episodes without these two conversations. These extra pieces of context and history and biographical information just change everything about how I read the play and how I view Aristophanes. 
Have I become a convert? <laughs> no, <laughs> we're probably going to stay away from him for the foreseeable future. But I do have a different appreciation of the play and what it can add to one's understanding of the ancient world, ancient gender dynamics, ancient Athens specifically. So I'm so thankful to George Kovacs for coming on the show and sharing this knowledge. Like Julie, he volunteered when I tweeted about it, and I didn't realize just how perfectly he aligned with what I wanted to talk about. But I feel like we all just got to sit in on one of those classes that he teaches at Trent, and I'm so grateful. God, this job is fun, even when we're talking about Aristophanes. So that's really saying something. Okay, I'm sorry. I will stop trying to insult that playwright. It's just become like a bit too much fun, you know? Fortunately, though, George was here to defend him and his honor. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things except having to read this play. Lucky her. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by iHeartMedia. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. Thank you all so much, you wonderful nerds. Next week, we're going to talk about women in myth rather than comedy. Thank the gods. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story. 
which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferreira, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.